0: It seems to me that everybody is searching for their identity. At the moment, in our millions, we are searching for our identity. And those who aren't searching for it seem to be losing their identity. I'm kind of a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I'm wondering if any of us actually know who we are anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's a question that we're facing. In Israel, as we look at the text, had two problems. They had a really strong sense of their identity. This was the first problem that they had. God gave them a super strong sense of who they were. It was written into their calendars. It was written into their feasts. They had it tied around their heads. They had it written on their walls. They knew exactly who they were. That was their first problem. But the second problem was they kept forgetting who they were. And God, don't know what you think God's up to, don't know what you think God's been doing, God's word tells us that God intercedes, intervenes, so that his people remember who he is and remember who they are. So there's just three ways. We're going to look at the story of David and Goliath. It's going to be a lot of fun through there, but I want you to stay with me in this room. The story of David and Goliath. Uh, and I want to think about three ways uh, that God speaks through David to, to remind God's people who they are and why it matters. And here's the three ways. God's people, so just kind of hang on. These will be like things to hang your thoughts on as we go through. Uh, God's people know where to start when they're facing problems. God's people know where to start when they're facing problems. God's people learn what saves them. So God's people know where to start when they're facing problems. God's people learn what saves them. And God's people know that they've got to show this. God's people know that they've got to declare this. This has got to look Like something. So, we're going to have the story of David and Goliath. So, it's a bit of a double act, uh, me and Steve today. Steve's going to take us through the narration of the story. So, it's one chapter, one. I tried to mix up chapter and Samuel, and that was never going to work, was it? One Samuel 17. Steve's going to pick up the story uh, for us at the start. Now, the
1: Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Ezekiel. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Aphrathite named Jesse, who was from uh, from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest... The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend to his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son, David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, "'ran to the battle lines and asked, him, asked his brothers how they were. "'As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, "'stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, "'and David heard it. "'Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. "'Now the Israelites had been saying, "'Do you see how this man keeps coming out? "'He comes out to defy Israel.' the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him. This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David, can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered with him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him.
0: The Israelites are in this what seems like an endless battle. Uh, with the Philistines, and it, it, as far as I can read it in the narrative, it sounds like the Israelites are a little bit on top, the Philistines are backing off, but as often happens in the battles, we've reached a point of like a standoff. So we've, it's happened all over the Second World War, all over the First World War, two, the two groups come together, and no, no one group can get past the other. It's a, it's a standoff. Nobody dare attack, nobody dare retreat. You just—they're both, both sets of uh, armies are holding ground. So what they do in this instance, what they did at this time... And it sounds sounds horrific, quite dark, um, but maybe a little bit more humane than how we battle these days. They decide to have a duel. That was the custom. You throw out your best fighter, you call on the best fighter from the other team, and you fight it out to determine who gets to advance. This is what happened. Except for Israel, who were doing quite well in the battle, they come up against this guy, Goliath, who, as Steve said, and I think you can almost imagine him from a distance, is just huge and terrifying. So what happens is they're stuck. Israel is stuck with this threat. And fear sets in. Fear sets in amongst the camp because they wonder what they're gonna do and they stand off and, and you know carries on. And so this is the scene on the battlefront and the narrative sort of drifts back and forth. I don't know if you noticed that, Steve, we're reading it out. We've got the battlefront scene and then the writer takes us back to the farm to Jesse's house, to sort of this picturesque setting, this more peaceful setting, and this good-looking lad, David, with his sheep, and a worried and anxious dad, Jesse, just worried about his lads out at the war. It's like this, we're supposed to see, I think we already started getting introduced to this guy, David, as this genteel character. And then David gets sent out, sent out to the front line. His dad says, go and check on my boys. So David rocks up. Now I don't know if you noticed um, the battle snacks that his dad sent out with him. Verse 18. I couldn't get my head around this. It reminded me a little bit of the time my first ever time when I did the Westgate Run which is a pub run around here and in the first pub I was in I think it was the wagon I asked for a dandelion and burdock. It's not what you, it's not what you ask for on the, on the Westgate Run. It's a, It was a foolish move of mine. He's got a cheese board with him. You don't Take a, can you imagine him walking up? I think he already, he's already quite genteel, already, already kind of a little guy. He walks up to the battle scene. Brothers have been there for days and days. Like Everyone's beefing up. Everyone's puffing out of their chest. It's a battle scene. David rocks up with a cheese board. And his brothers say to him, clear off. Get back. Get back to the farm. You're too little for this. You're too small for this. As I was digging around and looking into this, we always think of this story as David facing Goliath, one giant, don't we? Actually, I think in order to to achieve God's purposes and plans this day, David faces three giants. Remember in the previous chapter, all David's brothers are tall? He runs into his, I think it's Adibadab, Eliab, something like that, runs into his eldest brother anyway. He's a giant, he tells him to clear off. He'll go and see Saul, do you remember about Saul? What did we hear about Saul? Tall and handsome. Saul was tall, and then he's got Goliath to face. He's got these three giants. Now we trek on to verse 26. Up to this point, everything that's been said, all of the language has been fearful, anxious, defeatist, godless. King David is about to speak. He's not spoke in the Bible, as we can understand it if you're reading it, through from the start so far. We've had, a, we've had introductions to him a few chapters back. We know he's a big player. We know he's a serious character. He's not said one word yet. But in verse 25, verse 26 rather, here come his first words. Sometimes when you're watching a film, you get introduced to a character. I was watch, watching Rocky the other night for the first time ever. Doesn't say anything for a little bit at the start of the film. And when he starts to speak, the words carry some gravitas because they're building up to a moment. These are David's first words. Moments, first thoughts—it's all been negative so far. Listen to what David says. What will be done? And this is like, this is like a theological sermon. I don't, you know, all the chat's been pretty scared so far. David just rocks up and he just gives them it straight away. Straight away. It's like the Archbishop of Canterbury getting let loose on a roast. Have you ever seen that show where the roast? It's like theological thought, but d- delivered with some like serious sharp direction some cutting humor david says what will be done for the man who kills this philistine and removes this disgrace from israel now hang on to this for a this is not something i live in castleford it's not something you shout around if you want to fight with somebody in cast who is this uncircumcised philistine that he should defy the armies of the living god it's not just weird fighting banter david's first words draw on the promises of the living God. He's not just trying to freak him out by talking about circumcision. Circumcision is the mark for God's people that they have got God's promise with them. God's promises that he's going to deliver them, that he's going to look after them, that he's going to take care of them. David starts on the promises of God. This is where he starts from. Nothing but fear and anxiety up to now. David's first words are built upon the promises of God. First thing we get told are we reminded about God's people is that they know how to face a problem or they get told how to face a problem. It's to start with the promises of God. When I thought about this, when I thought about David just rocking up and giving us this message, I reflected on how long I, we, when faced with a problem, spend dissecting it, worrying about it, Googling it, dwelling on it, fixating on it, a bit like Israel. I think when you look at Israel in this moment, their problem almost began to define them. They were just wanderers in the wilderness, people stuck on a battlefield. Our problems sometimes end up defining us, don't they? It can be so long before we end up turning to God. Now I'm not even talking about in this moment turning to God in prayer. Do you know like those last minute, right, I've tried everything else, I'm going to offer up a prayer. I'm talking about standing on the promises of God. Imagine how different our lives might be if when we face problems, we started them, we started facing them by standing on the promises of God. Imagine the... The long, rubbish day at your work that's coming for some of us on Monday morning with the person that annoys you in the job that you may be struggling with. It's kind of difficult. There's pressures on you at the moment. Imagine if you started that day with the promise that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Like, imagine if that's, that's your mindset. It's not the radio you've got on in the car in the morning. It's God's got a plan and a purpose for my life. There's something really significant that he's got for me to do. Some of that was going to bear out in my work. Imagine if you had that promise as you faced that moment. The awkward family reunion that you've got coming up, whether it's a party or whether it's a get-together, whatever, which we all face in our lives. The awkward family reunion. Imagine if you went on the car on the way over with a promise that God's grace will be sufficient for you. How would the chat go? How would your heart be as you met up with your old friends and family? The boring church service, rocking up to church, when the preacher goes on and on and on and on, as sometimes happens here. Imagine if you went with the promise that God's word is a double-edged sword. It can cut through you. Imagine if you went with the promise that as we draw near to God, he's gonna draw near to us. Imagine if you started the service with that. If you all came with that, it doesn't matter how rubbish I am week after week. You'll get a blessing if you come with that promise. Imagine how different things will be if we start with the promise of God. That's the first thing I think we take out of this story. God's people start with the promises of of God. The text goes on. So verse
1: 32. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you.
0: This is a really critical moment in the battle, hugely significant. Like all the pressure is on in this moment. For the soldiers, sending out this boy, it's like, is this going to be worthwhile or is it going to be a worthless event? For Saul, he's thinking, if we lose this, we lose land. For David, it's his life. It's like a life or death matter. It's a huge critical moment in all of their their lives. And yet, look at David's confidence. Look at his swagger as he rocks up in front of Saul. This is what he says in verse 32. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Where does he get his... How is he confident in this moment? Where does he get his energy from? Where does he get his swagger from? How is he so confident? What gets him to that point? I have the uh, privilege as part of my job uh, to be the chaplain down at the Cast Tigers. Um, so I've been there now seven years and as I've been there now seven years I've been able to observe, because I've been there that long now, players who have come as kids and they've made their way into the first team and, they've, and you know, I've seen them set off as kids and arrive on the first team as debutants, running out in front of, you know, they don't get hundreds of thousands at CAS, but you know, 10,000 people on a really good day, just huge pressure and I've watched these kids and I've seen them run out with the confidence to face, face that moment, to be in that moment. Balls coming out of the sky, all that kind of stuff. How do they face that confidence? What you get to see uh, as you go along sort of week by week, and what you observe is that, I guess most people watching the debutant run out just sees him there for the first time, a little bit like we see David. He's just on for the first time. But if you've been in the backstory, if you've seen this go through, the guys that end up making their debuts have been catching high balls, have been been told by people over and over again that they're too small, have been in high pressure, intense situations for years and years and years and years. Tested, tried, found out. So the point when they go make their debut and when the lights are all on them, yeah, it's a huge big deal, but they've got 10, 12, 13 years of going through this same sort of thing. David faces Saul, faces this huge battle, and he says to him, all of my life, all of my working life out in those fields, I have been dealing with things bigger than me. And as I have been facing these things bigger than me, I have been trusting in God even when it's just been mundane things, even when it's just been protecting the sheep, I've been learning that God is saving me even in these moments. And he says to Saul, I've learned this, so even though I'm in this huge situation, I can trust him today. This is the second point. God's people learn what saves them. One of people's biggest concerns, I think, it's one of my biggest concerns, I think it's one of, people's biggest concerns is, how will we face, how will we face life? How will we be when the problems come? When the really difficult moments in our life come? How are we gonna stand up? How's our faith gonna be? How's our attitude gonna be? I think one of the joys of the Christian experience in the Christian life, at least for me, has been seeing people seeing Christians, people of faith over the years who are facing huge circumstances, huge difficulties, huge problems, like the visit to the docks, losing your job, difficult relationships, loneliness, things like this, seeing them in that situation. And yet seeing them, oddly, I don't know if I'd use the word swagger or confidence, but resilient, coping, Because, why? The refrain I often hear from people in this circumstance is, well, he's never let me down before. He's never left me before, God. Why should he leave me now? Why should I not trust him now? I've learned that he saved me so many times in in the past. Why should he leave me in this moment? What it means for us as we go through our lives, I think what it means for us is that no moment... No moment when we're learning about the assurances of God, no moment when we're learning that Jesus saves, that God is enough, no moment no matter how trivial, when we're learning that, none of those moments are wasted. So even if, even if you've had that period in your life where you were down for months and you think that can't really be about anything, that was just a down period, but you come out of that down period and you realize when you look back that something kept you going. And when you assess that, you say, that was God who kept me in those times. That was God who was with me in that down down period. In fact, that might have been all I had in that time. None of that was wasted. When you've had a day, maybe a day in with the kids, or a day at work, and you're just at your total wit's end, and you've thought terrible things, terrible things about your kids, you've thought you might throw your laptop out the window, you've maybe even thought you might throw your kids out the window, you've just been completely... At your wit's end, and yet you get through it and you're able to look back and you say, Do You know what? I think it was only God that was keeping me in those moments. Just something of the grace of God. Those moments are not wasted. Those are moments like David had out in the fields when he was learning preparation for, to face the biggest battles of his life. None of this is wasted. In the economy of God, none of these moments are wasted if we're learning that God saves. We are being prepared, prepared for bigger things, prepared for trials, prepared for ultimate things. That's the second thing. Nothing is wasted. The last part of the text.
1: Verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around, because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Paul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off, then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bare in front of him, kept coming closer to David he looked david over and saw that he was a little more than just than a boy glowing with health and handsome and he despised him he said to david i am a dog that you come at me with stick with sticks and the philistine cursed david by his gods come here he said and i'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals david said to the philistine All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with, with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him.
0: Brilliant. Got it. Great bit of the story. Loved a little bit of the story at the start of that. Just reading there as David stands before Saul. And Saul looks at him and he says, we need to get this guy dressed up. We need to get some battle armor on him. We need to make it look, I'm guessing this is what he's thinking, we need to make it look at least to the enemy that he can fight him. We need need to dress him up. We need to give the people hope. We need to send him out with that. But David, I think it's quite a comical scene. You can almost imagine him tripping over himself as he walks around and says, this is not for me. And then I don't know if you noticed in in the text, he almost gets... I think the author wants us to see the shepherd boy walking back out to battle. It's almost like he's accessorized um, to reveal rural, um, back-trodden farmer boy. He's got the bag, he's got the sling, he's even got the staff. He's gonna walk out and face this giant with the staff. And then there's this brilliant moment in the text. So I think this is what the author is trying to get us to see. The two characters come together. There's this walking, into the battle in the middle. And as they walk into the battle in the middle, the language says the giant just gets bigger and bigger. As you're watching on, the soldiers are watching on, the readers looking in, the giant's getting bigger and bigger and more and more confident. And David looks more and more like a small shepherd boy the nearer they get to the middle. And then Goliath gives him the WWF style rant. That's how I imagine it in my head. It's like a wrestling ring sort of put down. Who have you brought? In front of me, am I a dog that you brought sticks? He's sort of saying, you're going to come up with me with a stick, man. This is the best you're going to do. I'm going to rip his head off. Proper wrestling talk. I'm just going to rip his head off. David, even small, gives it some wrestling chat back. I love this. Just throws it back all of the same, except he finishes off by saying, I'm going to do all that you've said that you're going to do to me, but I'm going to do it without any weapons. And I'm going to do it at half your size. Why? Because when I do it, everybody's going to know that God lives. The God of Israel lives and will prevail today. Third point, final point, is that God's people, see what everybody sees here in this moment? God's people declare his work in their lives. People that are God's, people that are his, show that they are his. It's seen. David slings his swings his sling around, stone whistles through the air, beautiful moment coming up, sinks into Goliath's skull, giant falls down with a thud. And even though when they came together, David was getting smaller and smaller, and Goliath was getting bigger and bigger, and the odds were stacked against them, Israel wins. And everybody there that day sees God. Israel that had missed him for so long Sees God. This is the last point of the sermon. Why does any of this matter? Ash, this is a 3,000-year-old story. Why should I bother with any of this? I'm going to try and explain why this story and stories like it are critical for us finding out who we are. At the moment, just think about this, we are flooded. And I'm certainly feeling this with three kids who all like a bit of Marvel. We are flooded with superhero films. Have you noticed? We just—it's uh, Hollywood A-listers, thespians, beef up, desperate to get the lycra on, jump in front of the green, sc- green screen, blue screen, whatever it's called, and be in these movies. They are everywhere. Why? Why are we saturated with superhero films? David and Goliath is a superhero film. Why are we saturated with these stories? Is it because we like, we like the idea of a man in lycra? We like the idea of a man in lycra who can fly? We like the distraction. We've got the tech to make these good films. Why, why are we seeing so many of these films? One thread in all of these superhero films that I found, and you can, maybe afterwards you can think of a superhero film that doesn't have this in it. The thre- one thread that runs right through them is that of identity. The characters, the heroes, even though they're bulked up muscly and can do amazing things, they're all figuring out who they are, where they fit into this scene. The Incredible Hulk, without a H, that's how I say it, you know, stacked, awesome jumper, but actually, it's like an angry man, trying to figure out how to fit into society. He's probably got some mental health issues. He's trying to work that out, where do I fit in? Spider-Man, casts his web, does all the rest of it, but actually, just a a geeky teenager trying to figure out where he fits in, in life. We are soaked up, I think, with films about superheroes because we are still, as a society and as a culture, more than anything else, we like the distraction, we like to see men in leica, perhaps, but we are still trying to find ourselves. We are still in need of knowing who we are. We are still looking for who we are. If you're not sure, that that's a valid point or a valid way to make an assessment of whether we are looking for ourselves or not. Just think about human beings at large. Think about human beings as a mass all over the world. Does it look like we are finding ourselves? Have we really come to grips with who we are? Are we nailing it as a species? What about you personally? Have you got to the bottom of who you are yet? Are you hoping for a bit more? Do you think you can do better? I think we are still finding out who we, who we are. This story shows us, shows us that. It shows us that we've still got a bit of an identity issue, but it also shows us what a breakthrough looks like. I think our species, us humans, need to see what an identity breakthrough can look like, and I think this story shows us that. The other commonality in the superhero movies is the weakness moment where the hero reveals his weakness. You know like Superman's kryptonite? When the kryptonite comes near him, he just loses all of his strength. Or when Spider-Man, you have that moment in, I remember the second lot of Spider-Man's, I don't know about the first lot of Spider-Man's, but where his suit gets ripped off and you just see that he's a kid. I think somebody on the train says he's just a kid. You get to see him in their weakness. All of the superheroes have got these moments in. Why have they got these moments in where we get to see them in their weakness? Will we not worship them? Will we not idolize them if they're strong all the time and heroic all the time? I think the truth is we won't. The moments in the film that turns it for us, where we connect, where we understand the superhero, when we get how powerful they are, when we really connect with them, is the moment when we see their weakness and our hearts are ripped out and we connect with it in that moment. I think Israel in this battle, if they'd have sent out a giant to fight a giant, nobody would ever have seen the God of Israel that day. We wouldn't have seen him. Because It was a boy that went out who got smaller and smaller and smaller the nearer we got to the front. When he beat him, everybody there connected with the story. Everybody got the power of the story. Everybody saw God. This breakthrough, the reason why we are connected with as a species in this way is why the cross of Jesus is a critical story for you to figure out who you are. It's the critical story to figure out who you are because it's the way, and don't ask me why, but it's the way that we see God and that God breaks through to us. Jesus left all of heaven's splendor, if you can believe that. All that heaven had to offer, he left it. He had everything, was literally everything, and he left that and he got smaller and smaller and smaller, he humbled himself, he was rebuked, he was abandoned, he was beaten up. And by the time him and the cross came together on that road up Calvary where the cross just looks bigger and bigger and bigger and the obstacles that Jesus is facing look bigger and bigger and bigger, death, sin, hate. And Jesus as he makes his way up Calvary's hill gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And yet, and yet, when he gets to the cross, and he hangs on the cross, and he gets off the cross, and he gets off the tomb, and the guy was beaten up and left, and was so small by the time he got to the cross, you could hardly see him. So humbled. What does the scripture say? He becomes nothing, he wins. And everybody, everybody gets to see God. And everybody, if you can believe it, everybody gets to find out who they are. That's the story of David and Goliath, and it's the story of who we are at the same time.